invite you to Matthew chapter 10. We'll read one verse of Scripture for our text this morning. That verse will be verse 16. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. That verse reads, The words of Christ, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This sermon will follow sort of on the heels of our last sermon, uh, Pearls in the Midst of Swine or Dogs and Hogs. Here we have the Lord using a different group of animals or creatures, sheep and wolves. And uh, so our title will be Sheep in the Midst of Wolves. That very title is an unpleasant thought, is it not? It is a frightening thought. It is an unpleasant thought. And uh, again, troubling to say the least. And of course, we're talking about the literal in that respect of sheep and wolves. The Lord again is using a metaphor to apply to the believing and the unbelieving here. When we think about that and the natures of the two, uh, one being prey, one being a predator, one being rather timid or stupid, some might even say, and the other being very vicious and cunning. Again, the consequences are disastrous, aren't they? And a little bit as we contemplate that, we, re, we are reminded, or I think of the fact, that again, the natures and characteristics of animals and all were affected in the fall just like you and I's nature were. That it was not always a prey-predator relationship. That came about due to sin. Death and suffering comes about due to sin, whether it's in the animal world or in the human world or the plant world, whatever it is. These are all situations that are a result of the fall. And, you know, the unpleasantness of sheep in the midst of wolves is something that some people just, uh, things like this, just put it out of your mind and it doesn't exist. Well, it does exist. It's a reality. Uh, death Suffering are the consequences of sin. And it doesn't matter what realm you don't want to think about it, it's still a reality, and it's going to keep happening. And I really wish more people would think about death and suffering. Uh, it has not evolved. It is a consequence of the fall. And it has affected everything. I literally believe in some respects that the world today, you know, uh, doesn't want to think that a chicken has to die for you to get your nuggets, you know. It doesn't want to think that a steer had to be slaughtered for you to get your steak and, and a fish, you know, had to be brought out and the water and, and sacrifice. You know, people don't want to think of that. Well, that, that's, I don't believe that's being naive. I believe that's being willfully ignorant. Life is all about living and dying and the Bible tells us about living and dying like no other book does. It tells us the whys. We don't have to look at a wolf and wonder why a wolf is a wolf. We don't have to look at a sheep and wonder why a sheep is a sheep because they beget like they have not evolved. And so again, 
at the onset, I want us to consider that sheep in the midst of wolves is a reality. Things die every day. People die every day. The predator-prey relationship is not an accident. It's not something to cry about. It is a reality of life. And so again, if that takes people back to Genesis 3, then all the more better that we realize how this all came about and started. I'm also reminded when I begin to think about this in the human perspective of a sheep and wolves and mixing those together and the terrible, fateful, bloody, dying consequences of prey-predator relationship, that again, one day, it will not be so. And I just want to mention that at the beginning. It's something to look forward to. That one day, when the Prince of Peace resides upon this earth in what we call the millennium, those animals will not behave as they do now. There will be sheep in the midst of wolves then, but it won't be like it is now. And I want to remind you of that at the onset, just to remind you what we have to look forward to. In Isaiah 11 and 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, and the young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play in the hole of the ass, and the weaned child shall not put his hand shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We can only imagine what the animal world was like before the fall. But again, the natures of these animals are a result of the fall as human nature in, and one day God, who is over all, can change that. You as a believer today, He changed your nature, didn't you? He gave you a divine nature. He imparted a new life into you that changed your nature so animals are not any problem for the great sovereign God of the universe. That will be something to behold indeed. Now, sheep in the midst of wolves is a reference to the people of God in the world. And if you thought sheep in the midst of wolves literally in the wild is an ugly picture, well, let me tell you, it gets uglier when you bring it into the human realm. Animals do what they do by their instinctive natures. But human beings, by their fallen instinctive natures, can contemplate evil beyond that which a wolf, a bear, or a lion could ever imagine. In fact, theirs is very limited by instinct. But it seems like the depravity of man is not limited when it comes to the cruelty and the viciousness that it can extract upon other creatures, its own creatures, other humankind. And in history past and in the present until the end of time, this will go on of people persecuting God's people. We're not seeing Christians killed in the streets of America, but they're being killed in other places throughout the world. And history has nothing but a wide swath of blood recording 
sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus said it would be so. It has been so. And you can just about discern historically who the Lord's people were by following, as the pamphlet we have back there says, the trail of blood. Hebrews 11 in the New Testament gives us a little insight to that in the Old Testament. In verses 33 through 40, this is the chapter on the heroes of faith, and in verse 33 it says that God's people in, through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, ordained, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. There's another uh, thing that again God is able to do and change the characteristics of the animal world when he sees fit. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Now I want you to think as I read through this, sheep in the midst of wolves. Escaped the edge of the sword, but not all of them. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in the fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Sheep in the midst of wolves. That they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. That is the trail of blood we're talking about, sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, let's look at what Jesus said in his words here. It's very striking if you pause to consider it. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Three points are laid out very clearly. First of all, behold, I send you forth. And we were talking about that in our Sunday school lesson this morning. And that begins with a behold, which means it's not casual. You need to stop, listen, heed, think about, and contemplate something when the word behold is there. Really absorb it. Really try to grasp it. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. This is something very serious. So the Lord said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. If you're familiar with Matthew 10, you know Jesus is a record here in Matthew 10 as He's just called the twelve disciples. And He is sending them out and He's giving them instructions about sending them out. And in those instructions, he tells them not to go in the way of the Samaritans or the Gentiles in verses 5 and 6, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is what we call the restricted commission. Later on, as we talked about in Sunday school, he gave the enlarged commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So... The things he are talking about here or is warning about sheep in the midst of wolves is really more futuristic with the enlarged commission than with the restricted commission if you stop and think about it. Under the restricted commission of going to the last sheep of the house of Israel, the disciples were operating, or the apostles, and the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out later, they were operating directly under the Lord Jesus Christ, weren't they? 
And Jesus was the center of the attacks, not the apostles. In fact, they enjoyed no persecution, you might say, to speak of while Jesus was alive and ministering because He was getting it all. He was the target. He was the bullseye. So Jesus here, when He says, I'm going to send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, He sent them forth then. But this is going to have its manifestation in the time after the resurrection and ascension of Christ in what we read about in the book of Acts. There's where we're really starting to read about sheep in the midst of wolves as far as the apostles were concerned. In fact, you might remember in Luke 10, 17, the 70 came back after going out preaching the gospel rejoicing that the devils were subject unto them. Remember that? Uh, again, so, uh, you know, later on in Acts 5, 41, uh, they're going to be rejoicing after they were scourged at the council that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name's sake. So two different types of rejoicings as they begin treated, be treated like sheep in the midst of wolves after the resurrection of Christ. Now, the words here, if you really contemplate other things in Scripture where we have the comparison of God's people as sheep can be a little confusing. I mean, think about it. Here is the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves his people, loves his sheep, making the statement, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now just think about that as a parent. Would you want to do that with your children? It sounds like if you cared for them, that'd be the last thing you would want to do, wouldn't it? And of course in John's Gospel chapter 10 we read about that marvelous illustration metaphorically of Jesus being the great shepherd of the sheep and how that He knows the sheep, He calls the sheep, He's known of the sheep, He loves the sheep, He lays down His life for the sheep. Why then would the shepherd send forth the sheep in the midst of wolves to seemingly be slaughtered in that regard? Well, to help settle this in your mind, let me suggest something to you. What Jesus is talking about and what record we have in John 10 about the shepherd and the sheep there is the relationship of the shepherd and the sheep. Is it not? That chapter's all about relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, right? Sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves has to do with the kingdom and being called to serve in the kingdom. Totally two different things. Not that they're isolated from one another. Everyone who is a child of the Lord Jesus Christ is a sheep that the Lord Jesus has laid down His life for. But you've also been called into His service in His kingdom. And in order to do that, we must go. Okay? So there's no contradiction. It's just two different aspects. One is relationship, and one is servitude. So He is not... This is not showing he doesn't love them by sending them out in the midst of wolves at all. No, that relationship is intact. 
Nobody loves you like the great shepherd if you're one of his. He laid down his life for you and the Bible tells us what can separate us from his love, nothing. Height, depth, heaven, hell, anything, everything, all put together, nothing can change that relationship. <coughs> Excuse me. However, being sent forth is our work in the kingdom of our Lord through His church. Now, why would He send us forth in the midst of wolves? Well, we might begin by saying that's His prerogative, but really there's a greater reason. Uh, just looking, if you want to look in that John chapter 17 for a moment, I would remind you of a scripture there in 1 in 1 Corinthians also that the sending forth of the gospel through the Lord's church is with purpose. Evangelism, the great commission, preaching the gospel is the ordained means by which the great shepherd calls his sheep out of the world and into the fold and that relationship to him. Then once that relationship <coughs> excuse me. Once that relationship is established, then they in turn are sent also into the world. John 17 and 20 makes this very clear. Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So the commission of going into the world and preaching the gospel to men, women, boys, and girls repent and believe the gospel is what God has ordained to save the elect, the sheep. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this seems foolish, a foolish thing to the world and to many religious denominations but it's very clear this is what God has ordained to save His people. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. So is there, there is a purpose of sending forth. And the other point that I wish to make here is He is not sending us forth or any of His people for the sake of of being slaughtered because he does not care. And the reason I bring that up is because I think of, you know, uh, wars that there have been, and there are people that are so evil and so arrogant and so egotistical and such narcissists that they don't care how many of their countrymen that serve under them they'll send off and sacrifice for their own cause. And of course, you know as I do, the more evil they are, the more they'll do it, and communists have seemed to be the worst in most recent ages. So that's not what our Lord is doing. That's the point I'm making. His is with a divine purpose, and it has a divine end in it also. So it is never for naught. My word will not return unto me void, and that everybody that suffers in the name of Christ will be rewarded both here and there. Well, the illustration is, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And again, I would say this is a prediction that the Lord is making 
more to the time after his ascension, and we read about it in the book of Acts, that's when the target became the apostles and the church because the Lord had been done away with, hadn't he? At least they thought he had. And he resurrected and went to the right hand of the Father. But sheep in the midst of wolves immediately, going back to what I said in the first point, you know, the shepherd gave us this example, didn't he? I mean, even if he hadn't said what he said in our text, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of the wolves, it is inferred by his own example and by his own words in other places. What did he say concerning the sheep? He loves the sheep. I think it's John again, that 10th chapter in verse 15, where he states that uh, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Peter said on the day of, uh, day of Pentecost that those individuals who were murdered the Lord Jesus Christ still carried out that evil according to the determinate counsel of God which was foreordained. That didn't make God guilty of their actions, but that means it was foreordained of God that He would allow them to carry out their evil intentions. It suited and fit His purpose. And they did. Jesus even made that clear to Pontius Pilate when he, again, I always refer to him. I just, for some reason, I just see that man like a strutting little banny rooster. You know, I mean, anybody that's ever had chicken, you just see a little old banny rooster and he just thinks he's cock of the walk, you know? And I mean, you know, he's just a banny. I mean, roosters get six times bigger than a, one of them little dudes, but boy, they think they're hot stuff. And they can't inflict terror. I was terrified of one when I was a kid. That little dude was mean. But again, you know, standing there before the Lord Jesus who created the world and, and looking at him and, and saying, don't you know that I have power to... <laughs> I mean... But that's all of us, folks. We all as sinners think we, we're more capable and we're more than what we are. And he didn't believe what Jesus said for a moment. But Jesus did speak the truth and remind him you wouldn't have no power at all if it hadn't been given to you. In other words, your little puppet office that you're sitting in there, you wouldn't even be there if God hadn't allowed it and ordained it. Amen. You know, and that's, that's the same thing he taught Nebuchadnezzar on a bigger scale, wasn't it? That, that God raises men up, whether it's a big position or a little position. But we understand that by the grace of God, don't we? And here is Jesus who, again, he didn't even need 12 legions of angels. He, he didn't need nothing. He could have annihilated Pontius Pilate on the spot had he so desired. He was not without power in that respect. But again, going back to the shepherd, he laid down his life. He allowed them to crucify him. And the blood was indeed upon their hands. So if they did that to the shepherd, what in the world should we expect for the sheep? Be any different? I'd be foolish, wasn't it? It'd be foolish. I mean, you see, a, you see somebody out here now with a herd of sheep and you shepherd over them. What happens to the sheep if something happens to the shepherd? There's nobody to look after them, right? I mean, you know, it's inviting trouble in that regard. And Jesus did not hide any of this. He made this very clear. 
that, you know, let me read this scripture. I think it's over here in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 26, down about verse uh, 31, where he mentioned this. Jesus said, All ye shall be offended of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. You know, and that's exactly what happened, was it not? And as he laid down his life for the sheep, it's rather ironic that he is predicting also that in the future the sheep would suffer for his sake. Now Christ died to redeem. We who are Christians and those who have been martyred and died, died in order to serve as a testimony and a witness on his behalf. And as I told you a while ago in Acts chapter 5, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to serve in the example of their master. Think about sheep and wolves a moment. We don't have to think much here. Again, we did this in the introduction, but how opposite they are, I'd have you to think first of all, right? One is prey to the other, which is a predator. So they are natural enemies. And I would say that to you. Think of it in this sense. All of us as sinners are enemies to God. But then when God saves a person who is his enemy, he is no longer an enemy of God, but he becomes an enemy of his former friends. We're now enemies of the world, aren't we? If you're a friend of God, you're an enemy of the world. If you're a friend of the world, then you're an enemy with God. We're either a servant of righteousness or a servant of sin. One or the other. You cannot have two masters. So, wolves and sheep being opposites, believers and unbelievers are opposites. Those who are saved by the grace of God and following Christ are very different to those who are on the outside of the fold and believing. In fact, the designation of Scripture can be that of, eventually in the end, of sheep and goats in that respect. Some similarities, but great opposites in that regard. Sheep, a docile, defenseless, feeble, weak, ill-equipped to defend itself, animal. The wolf, on the other hand, a savage, vicious, cunning, murderous, bloodthirsty killer. To mix the two is an absolute bloodbath disaster in the literal realm, is it not? Why this illustration? Why sheep in the midst of wolves? Why are God's people even given the figure of being sheep in that regard? Well, it fits for one thing. Just like wolves fit the unbelieving, Jesus talked about and demonstrated His meekness and His people should do the same thing. As far as the sheep being weak and helpless, I remember what uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians again in that first chapter. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to thought not things that are. So as we know, God always works with the weak, the base, that which is feeble, 
And through that, He gets His glory when they are able to accomplish what they otherwise could not. The Moses, the Gideons, and I say Gideons, you know I'm talking about Gideon, not a group of people, Gideons. But that's what God does. The weak and the base thing. So, sheep fit the Lord's people. The vine and the branches, we must depend upon Him because we certainly can't withstand by and in of ourselves. Without Him, we're nothing. Sheep without a shepherd are nothing. They are vulnerable to the wolves in that regard. So what Jesus obviously is talking about here is the Christian life. Since God has saved you, could you say your life has been like a sheep in the midst of wolves? If you've been very obedient in some ways, you will readily acknowledge that. Because when God saved you, He called you out of the world. And like I say, the things that were normal then are abnormal now. The loves and the appetites then are not the same anymore. And those things you once loved, you now hate. And the things you once hated, you now love. And so when God saves people, He makes them to have enemies. They're not what they used to be. They're a new creation in Christ. And the old friends don't usually like that very well many times. So sheep in the midst of wolves is your life and my life if you're a child of God. Why should we expect good times in that? The good times are spiritual. There's no setting your life on cruise control as a disciple of Christ and thinking just slide through and, and never be mocked or ridiculed or anything else unless you just get in a corner and don't go, as he said, or stand or speak in that respect. But the Lord is warning us of the reality, isn't he? He did not hide it. He did not deceive people into following Him and not telling them what they would suffer. He told people right up front, didn't He? He's telling the disciples here in Matthew 10 when He's sending them out the first time, right up front. This is what you can expect. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. And I'm not going into all the things that follow verse 16, but He went into detail about the problems with people and the wolves they'd encounter and where they'd be called upon to do, and they'd be punished and persecuted and, and all kinds of things and would even be called to die. He didn't hide it in the least. This is the reality. This is the danger. He was warning of them of that, that they might be prepared for it and that they could expect it to come. It's still not pleasant to think about when you think about having to endure or go through those things, but our comfort in that lies in what? Well, going back to that original point, that it, we have been called as a witness and a testimony of the gospel that others may be brought into the fold. That should be the desire of our life, right? Is to be obedient to our calling, that by example or witnessing to others, others would be saved and brought into the fold. The means of conversion. And then if our Lord suffered so for us beyond what we will ever suffer, should we not be willing to suffer a little bit for Him? 
And you say, what do you call it in a little bit? And I say, well, I'll put it to you like this. I think I can use that term because when you look at all that Paul suffered, he called it light affliction compared with the glory which will one day be ours. So from the human standpoint, yes, disastrous danger to be feared and things, but from the faith perspective, it is a glorious thing. The disciples went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name's sake. So it was not a negative, it was, I'll, I'll label it, a positive reality. It's going to happen. How are we going to deal with it? Well, we know this. The Lord can protect the sheep and He can restrain the wolves according to His will. Scripture's full of it. Scripture's full of it. I read you the Scripture over there a while ago. Daniel should have been torn to shreds by those lines. What did the Lord do? He closed their mouth. <laughs> I mean... You know, God is in control of everything. Don't forget it. You know, the animal world is not an exception. The sea is not an exception. Insects and bugs and lice are not an exception. Look at the plagues of Egypt. He controls it all. And He uses it all for His glory and for His power. The sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without Him knowing it. James was immediately beheaded by Herod, but Peter was spared, right? I mean, they couldn't touch Paul until finally God determined his time was up and he was beheaded. I mean, this is the way it's always been. God will preserve the sheep till they fulfill his purpose. And he will restrain the wolves just like Christ himself. They tried to take him numerous times, but they couldn't take him before his time. And no child of God, no sheep can be martyred before his time. And so again, I don't have time to go into detail, but the Lord protects His sheep. The Lord knows how they can best serve Him. And the Lord can close the mouth of the wolves or restrain their vicious nature until it fits in with His purpose. And He hasn't done that, and the Bible's full of those examples. Well, what are we to do? Well, He tells us. That's the situation. That's the reality. It's not going to change. Don't think it will change. Until sheep change and wolves change, this is not going to change. We live in a world that hated our Lord and that world hates us. It hates this very precious book that you and I believe in and try to obey and live by. That's not going to change. That's the situation. Accept it. Expect it. Rejoice if it doesn't happen today. But be prepared, it could happen tomorrow. In the meantime, he tells us, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, here again, our text is very unique in that it compares sheep and wolves in one context and then compares those two with another two that are pretty opposite, serpents and doves. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. You all know the story, the beginning of the serpent. He shows up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, more subtle than any beast of the field. I would not even entertain to your 
mind what the serpent was before the fall. I don't know. Before God cursed him to crawl on his belly. I don't know if he had legs. I don't know if he had a hundred legs. I don't know. It don't matter. We don't need to know. But what we know of today is that a serpent is a reptile that crawls on its belly. It doesn't have legs. But a serpent is very cunning and subtle. And again, this characteristic again was applied by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 about the subtility of the serpent in deceiving Eve the woman. So it is a characteristic that goes with the serpent. And it is naturally so. Again, you think about it. Lizards have legs and frogs have legs and other reptiles have legs, you know. Fish have fins, birds have wings, but a snake crawls on its belly. Very unique. It's not going to reach out and touch anything, is it? It only has its mouth. Just that winding, that winding body and its mouth. So, pretty despicable creature in that sense. I, it's always bothered me. You know, I just, I don't know, it's heartbreaking to see somebody, and some people are born this way, and some people have, it's happened to them, where they have no arms or legs, just a torso. It's just, that, that's just such a helpless thing to look at. You know, I mean, a human is so restricted in how they can function without arms and legs, right? Well, that's the way a serpent is all the time. But, we get the impression that it makes up with it, with its wisdom and cunning and subtlety. And it kind of reminds me of how it seemingly that folks who are blind, some that I have known, their sense of smell, their sense of hearing, and other things, those senses are developed when that one sense is taken away. Well, again, whatever the serpent lacks in physical things... It is very superior in its cunning and its subtility and the way it can seek out prey and feed itself and etc., etc., etc. So wise as serpents. While the sheep may be weak, they need to be thinking sheep. <laughs> they need to think about how to protect themselves and how to be obedient to our Lord even though we are weak in and of ourselves. Again, the vine and the branches. Without me, you can't do anything. You know? We depend on Him. Sheep depend on a shepherd. They're not natural thinkers. But we need to think. We need to have the subtlety and the wisdom of the serpent because we lack weakness. And our warfare is not physical in this world. It is a spiritual warfare. It's a warfare of the mind and of the heart and of the soul. Not like some denominations of taking up a sword and destroying the enemy. So again, the serpent, the wisdom and intelligence demanded by him is necessary to compensate for what he lacks in the physical sense. And yet at the same time, that same serpent that about the time you feel sorry for it is able to afflict a poisonous, venomous bite. A serpent is a serpent. 
So the wisdom of the serpent in lack of that which may be physical or natural ability. Then the second part says, harmless as doves. There's all kinds of birds, aren't there? There are birds of prey and predator birds. Birds that are victims. And a dove is and has, I suppose, always been a picture of innocence in that regard. What do I mean by that? If you've ever observed birds very much, look in the eye of an eagle, look in the eye of a hawk, look in the eye of any of the raptors. There's something there that's not in the eye of a dove. You know, it's just like some animal's eyes. You can just look in a horse's eye sometimes or a mule's eye or something and there is a wildness or a viciousness or something there and they don't have a calm eye. People are the same way sometimes. You know, I mean, the eyes tell a story. And by the eye, the dove is a very meek and docile bird. Picture of innocence. In fact, we have a species called a mourning dove, don't we? kind of depicting that woeful, meek, sad, innocent cry that it makes. So a dove in that respect, timid, simple, even stupid to some degrees. In fact, uh, there's the analogy in Hosea chapter 7, 11, 11 about Ephraim as, as a silly dove. Okay, Not very smart again in that regard timid harmless as dove just come to my mind I heard a man preach one time and he made this reference I'll have to tell you about it later but nevertheless he made mention of the dove and he said the dove doesn't have claws like a eagle or a hawk does does it it doesn't it doesn't have those sharp talons it doesn't defend itself with a sharp beak or anything else like that. It is a relatively innocent bird in that regard. So the Bible is telling us here and Christ is telling us here while we're to be the wise and possess the wisdom and be thinkers as the serpent as sheep in the midst of wolves, we're to be harmless and meek as a dove at the same time. Now, this is a very interesting combination to say the least. Alright? The wolves and the sheep were opposites. Here the Lord is taking two opposites and putting them together. Combining the characteristics. Okay? Which He didn't do in the illustration obviously with sheep and wolves. But He's drawn from these two that this is how we should be. The Christian, the believer, is to be the combination of both of these. We are to be wise, and wisdom is knowing when to talk, when not to talk, what to say, how to say it, how to behave, how to restrain, how to exercise temperance, you know. And yet at the same time, be bold and uncompromising when it comes to the gospel. It is to be prudent. And yet meek. It is to be innocent and harmless. It is to be loving your enemies, yet not compromising the gospel again. 
It is a very unique and ironic combination that we are to be. Not, however, an impossible one. And again, if you have any doubts about this, I wouldn't tell you, well, look at Paul or look at this or look at that. I'd say, look at Christ. (laughs) I mean, he was perceived to be very weak. And when you're meek, the world will take it to be weak. But that's their problem. That's their problem. Jesus' meekness was not without power nor without boldness. Nor did it infer any compromise. And neither did the apostles or Paul's or anybody else. In fact, let me read you a couple of scriptures. We'll wrap this up. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 We are to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's the image of the dove there. Innocence, purity, sinlessness, blamelessness, not a reviler, not striking out, not going to war with people over doctrine or in the flesh because they disagree with us on some point. In the book of James, chapter 3, verse 13, We read these words. Who is a wise man endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, that's behavior, his works with meekness of wisdom. So here again, those two scriptures are referencing what the Lord said. It's a combination of these characteristics of the serpent and the dove in that regard. A commentator that I read said it like this. And I'm quoting, I quote individuals rarely, but sometimes I do when a comment just so strikes me as so brief and so to the point, so much better than I can, then I'm going with them. Think of this, listen carefully. The dove without the serpent is easily caught. There's the innocence, the timidness, the not thinking of the dove. The dove without the serpent is easily caught. The serpent without the dove stings deadly. We're not supposed to revile. We're not supposed to retaliate. We're not supposed to be mean like the serpent, are we? We're supposed to have its wisdom, not its poison. And the dove, again, is just so naively vulnerable in and of itself. But with the wisdom of the serpent, it can escape many dangerous situations. I'll read it again. The dove without the serpent is easily caught. The serpent without the dove stings deadly. So we're not supposed to be either one of those But when you put the combination together, then wise as serpents, harmless as doves. I'm going to close with this reading of, again, our Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 7. I believe this encapsulates our point. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now I just want to point this out. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, but only because he allowed himself to be so. He opened not his mouth. That was wisdom. 
He was the truth. He spoke the truth. He didn't have to debate it with them. He was a lamb to the slaughter, but it was of his own volition. He appeared to be dumb, but let me tell you, he was anything but dumb. Because he opened not his mouth. Sometimes silence may be the best witness you can give. Wisdom is knowing when, where, what, how to say. And our Lord, in you read a few verses further down from our text, He said, don't worry about it. When the time comes, I'll give you what to say. We all need that. There's much more here than I've touched upon, but maybe I've made you think and maybe the Holy Spirit will teach us all and give us the grace to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves in the midst of a perverse and ungodly world. That's who we're to minister to, remember always.